Thank you, Pastor Brandon. It's good to be with you all this morning. You all must know that I'm very thankful uh, for your pastor. Uh, I need to go on record because he's giving me a hard time last week. I need to go on record by saying that I think Pastor Brandon is the best preacher in Wichita. All right. And I mean that. I'm not, I'm not just trying to, you know, put on a front. You know, I, I respect Pastor Brandon. He's, he's been a mentor to me. He's been an example for me of someone who's faithfully preaching God's word. And so I want you all to know that it's an honor to be here. This is a home away from home. Um, so it's good to be here. If you have your Bibles, your devices, we're going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. They said I could preach whatever I wanted. And so in the season that I'm in, I probably didn't think through the, the lens of Advent necessarily. But this morning, we want to talk about multi-ethnic unity. Multi-ethnic unity. Why I chose this topic, I mean, I think it's, you know, pretty, pretty easy. Why? Uh, but I am wholeheartedly committed, uh, one, to preaching God's word and the gospel, and two, to planting a multi-ethnic church here in Wichita. And so that, that's, that's the season I'm in. And I think the unity of the church is essential for our day and age today. It's essential. I'm reminded of, of John chapter 17, where Jesus prays multiple times for oneness, for unity. And I love it. He, he has the unity of the church in mind um, as a witness to the outside world. As a witness to the outside, outside world. So our unity is essential um, in communicating, manifesting the power of the gospel to the outside world. And so I know in a lot of ways I'm going to be preaching to the choir this morning because of your pastor. Um, but let's dive in. If you please stand for the reading of God's word, we'll start in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. 26 through 29. This is how it reads. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Slave nor free, there was a male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ and you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Before we dive in, let's, let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we praise you, Father, for being the, the creator who created the heavens and the earth. Father, not only are you the creator, but you are our redeemer. Father, who has redeemed us, who has saved us, who has pursued us, who has initiated towards us. And so, Father, we ask as we come to your word that you would prepare the soil of our hearts, the seed of your word to fall in good soil and produce fruit. Father, that everything that comes from my lips would be honoring and glorifying to you and that it would build up your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So it was the spring of 1963. Martin Luther King Jr. is in jail in Birmingham, Alabama, and he pens a letter that I would encourage you all to read. This letter is a response to a letter written to white clergymen, pastors, who are upset with King, saying that uh, we want you to be patient. We want you to uh, let things kind of organically work itself out. And so King, he, he writes this letter. And so 
uh, I, I want to pull you into his prison cell and read a small part of what many call his prison epistle. This is, what, this is how it reads. I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. I've traveled the length and the breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I've looked at the south's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I've beheld impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I find myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and notification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I've wept over the laxity of the church. The laxity of the church. And so it's important as we read this to understand that King is not writing to extremists. He's not writing to the KKK, but he's writing to, to white Christians who are standing on the sidelines. They see what's going on and, and they choose to be silent. They, they don't take action. They choose not to engage. They, they want to stick to the status quo. As a matter of fact, he says that some believe that this has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question I want to ask the question I have is, is what gospel were they proclaiming? Or better yet, what Jesus were they following? Were they proclaiming the individualistic gospel, which when reading Ephesians 2, they stop at verse 10? Or are they preaching the slaveholder's gospel, which separates body and soul? So while this gospel impacts your eternal state abstractly, it does not impact your current physical state. Well, we'll save your souls, but we won't set you free. Or was it the uh, go to heaven when you die gospel, emphasizing the not yet of the kingdom and forgetting the now? Did they follow the American blue-eyed, white, domesticated Jesus that fits nice and neatly into, into their political agenda? I'm reminded of the question Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am is an important question Jesus asks. And so as we come to Galatians, Paul, he comes out the gate swinging. He gets straight to the point in chapter one. I love it. He doesn't start out with how he's thankful for the Galatians. He doesn't start with uh, how he's been praying for them. He doesn't write endearing words. He doesn't highlight how they've been killing it. 
Now, Paul comes out the gate swinging. Paul is shocked, appalled, astonished, dumbfounded that, that the Galatians were suffering from what I want to call spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten the gospel, abandoning the true gospel and turning towards a different gospel, which he says is actually no gospel at all. He says that there are people in their community throwing them into confusion. And so we see that Paul's words here, they're they're oozing with urgency. In chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so these were outsiders, Judaizers, inserting false beliefs. You could say that they were adding to the gospel. They were adding to the gospel. They were saying to these Gentile Christians that in order to be part of the community, to be a part of the community of faith, to be accepted, to be saved, you need to, uh, you need to accept circumcision. You need to eat a kosher diet. You need to follow the Sabbath. And so this is the issue that we see later on addressed in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Verse 1. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Later on, Peter equates this way of thinking as putting a yoke on ethnic Gentiles' necks. He says, neither we nor our ancestors could bear. Look, verse 10 and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we our ancestors have been able to bear. Verse 11, no, we believe it through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are, just as they are. James says, why should we make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God? Why should we create more obstacles for them to come to faith? These Judaizers were saying that Gentiles need to assimilate to Jewish customs to be saved, assimilate to be in. And so, brothers and sisters, the question I want to ask is, are we creating obstacles, barriers that have nothing to do with the gospel that that is actually keeping people from coming to faith? Are we creating obstacles and barriers that have nothing to do with the gospel? That if you come to faith, you need to talk like this, dress like this, vote like this, assimilate to my culture or norms in order to be in the community of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is called colonized discipleship. Colonized discipleship. So Paul puts a full court press on this false gospel. He says the message of, of the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. And so now if you look at our text Faith in Jesus is a means by which we are brought into union with Christ. Or in Paul's language, uh, he calls it being in Christ. In Christ. Look at our text. If you look at our text, you notice that it's overwhelmingly about Jesus. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, for all who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, all are one in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ. So the NIV says, if you belong to Christ. And so our text is full of Jesus, which leads to my first point. In Christ, we are children of God. 
In Christ, we're children of God. Verse 26 and 27 says, For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And so Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, 165 times in his letters. 165 times. This, this idea of being in Christ means that Christ represents us. That what is true of Christ is now true of us. All right, it kind of reminds me of the story of David and Goliath. Y'all know the story. We have this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And essentially what they said is each, each pick one soldier to go out and fight. And whoever wins, wins the battle. All right, and so you have David and you have Goliath. Y'all know the story. David wins. And so I love it. The Israelites literally did nothing. But in that moment, they were in David's victory. In that moment, they were in his victories, slapping hands. We did it, but they did absolutely nothing. David's victory represents the Israelites. Likewise, Paul says, we have put on Christ. Another version says, we have been clothed with Jesus. Therefore, we have been draped with the righteousness of Jesus. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. This, this, this idea of you are sons of God, this idea of sonship in the Greco-Roman world symbolized a certain status and rights of inheritance. All right? And so if you look ahead to chapter 4, verse uh, 4 and 7 in Galatians, look what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under, who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So he's saying that in Christ, we have been adopted as children of God. So in this text, we see a double sending, a double sending. God sent forth his son to the world. Secondly, he sent his spirit into our hearts. Therefore, we're no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. This is good news because this, this affects our status. This affects our security. And this even shows our experience of how we relate to God as Father. I think this is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, our Father. Yeah. Our Father. We can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. We can boldly and confidently come to him. And this also sheds light on not just how we relate to God, but how we relate to each other. We have been adopted into God's family. Therefore, we have been adopted into a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family. So not only have we gained a father, but we've gained brothers and sisters. Therefore, we are family. All right, we're family. And so in Christ, we're children of God. Secondly, in Christ, we are Abraham's seed. In Christ, where Abraham seed. Man, I love this part. In Christ, where Abraham seed. A central theme um, uh, to Paul's letter is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Central theme, Genesis 12. And, and this promise essentially was, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you so that through you, all peoples, all nations will be blessed. All right? And so we see that Paul quotes this in Galatians 3, just a few verses earlier in verse 7 and 9. So, so look, look, look with me in your Bibles. Look what Paul says. Know then, that, uh, know then that, th that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, which Abraham means a father of many. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So look what Paul does. Paul equates the Old Testament promise to Abraham to the New Testament gospel. What Paul is getting at here is is that the inclusion of the Gentiles, of all peoples, all ethnicities, this idea of a multi-ethnic family was not some afterthought in God's head, but has been the purpose of God's plan since the beginning. This is the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. And it was in Jesus that this promise would be fulfilled. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this idea of an heir, I love it, is the idea of, of someone that gains an inheritance following someone's death. Someone who gains an inheritance following someone's death. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we have an inheritance. We, we have been justified, adopted. He has sent us the spirit. He has given us a family where we belong. We have hope that Jesus will come again and make all things right under his rule and reign. No more injustice, no more racism, no more marginalized peoples, no more watching these shootings in the news, no more riding in the streets, no more. That's the not of the kingdom that we get to look forward to, and it will be glorious, friends, glorious. That's the future hope that should lift us beyond our present circumstances today. However, passage show reminds us that, that those who believe only and then not yet of the kingdom, are tempted to gloss over or ignore the physical pain around them today. Thus forgetting, the kingdom, uh, the, uh, thus forgetting that the kingdom is now as well as not yet. And the now of the kingdom is to be primarily manifested through God's people, the church. Remind of Matthew 6, where, where Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He teaches us to pray for his kingdom to come today here on earth. And a few verses later, verse 33, he teaches us to proactively seek his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So just like you go to the movies and watch a movie trailer which, which whets our appetite for what is to come, We are to be a divine movie trailer here on earth, giving a foretaste of what the not yet of the kingdom will be like. Love, justice, righteousness, shalom, reconciliation. Would it be this divine movie trailer here on earth of what is to come? We're to pull back what is to come in the future here in the present. So, in Christ, we are children of God. In Christ, we're Abraham's seed. Thirdly, in Christ, we are one. In Christ, we are one. Paul, he's writing to a church in the midst of a culture filled with racism, sexism, division, injustice, oppression, political ideologies, and more. Does that sound familiar? All right, and so I love it. What Paul does is he looks at the culture, and he doesn't say, those are just social issues. You preach the gospel. He doesn't keep quiet thinking these issues will organically just work themselves out. He doesn't cling to political, uh, political ideology that he hopes will answer the problems. He addresses three of the major divisions in the culture with the gospel, ethnicity, class, and gender. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul hits it head on. He shows how the gospel intersects with our differences. 
In so many words, Paul is saying that the gospel dismantles racism, dismantles sexism, dismantles any ism. The gospel obliterates hierarchies. It, it transcends our differences. He says we no longer divide over issue, these issues. And I think you can take it a step further. I don't think it's a stretch to say that neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, or Republican nor Democrat. It's not a stretch. It's not a stretch. If we're contextualizing the text for today, it's not a stretch. And so what, what I mourn over the most in the church today is how we have allowed politics to divide the church. How we have allowed politics to divide the church. That we are so quick, quick to be nasty, to demonize a brother or sister in Christ because they vote differently than you do. We accuse, we vilify, we expect the worst from people who don't share our political mindset. All right? So, friends, we cannot be more committed to our political parties, political agendas, than we are to King Jesus. We can't. We can't. Because reality is some Christians today are more familiar with their political party's talking points than they are with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's be real. What happened to blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are the meek. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. He says, don't have anger in your hearts. Oh, here's one. Why do you look at the, the, at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye, but ignore the plank in your own eye? So are you more concerned with your political party or the unity of the church? Which, by the way, again, Scripture says so much about the unity of the church as a witness to the world. So when we are divided, fighting, being everything but loving, what does that communicate to the outside world about the power of the gospel, about Jesus? What does that communicate? I love what one historian, a Christian historian said when writing about the Christians in 410 AD in Rome. Look what he says. Christians had forgotten, forgotten that they were citizens of two cities, the one Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. Augustine believed that Rome was a city of man whose way of life ultimately was founded upon self-love, domination, possessions, and glory. Augustine contrasted that way to the Christian way expressed in the city of God, the pilgrimage community that, lo that loves God, seeks wisdom, and practices charity and hospitality. In truth, Augustine wrote, these two cities are entangled together in this world. Sometimes the city of man honors the city of God and its virtues, other times not. For those who follow Christ, their truer home is God's city, always pure and more beautiful than any earthly one. So again, who are we pledging our allegiance to? It's the city of God or the city of man? The city of God or the city of man? So in Christ, we are one, one in Jesus Christ. Our identity is in Christ, period. Period. And so uh, a few more passages said light on this verse of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. 
Even so, the body is not made up of one, but of many. And look at Colossians 3.11. I love this. At the beginning of Colossians 3, Paul reminds the church uh, that not only have you died with Christ, but you have been raised with Christ. You are, you are united with him. Therefore, to get, we should get our hearts and our minds on things above. Paul then describes the things from the old way of life that we are to put off. and We are to move towards the new ways of Christ. Therefore, he's saying that, that when you come to Christ, all your sinful patterns don't just go away. They don't just go away. But there is a sanctification process of putting off and putting on to become like Jesus. And I love how he concludes it with, look at verse uh, 11 in chapter 3. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And so to Paul... Racial prejudices belong to the old man. They belong to the old man. And the reality is we all, all have inherited things from this world, consciously and subconsciously, that shape the way we see ourselves, the world, people, very specific, different people. We've learned these things from our families, our towns, our cities, the friends you grew up with, social media. And so Paul is saying in Galatians 3, verse 28, that, that the gospel should radically reshape our social world. Radically reshape it. How we view other people. We need to put off those old ways and put on the new. That everyone is made in the image of God, period. Period. And so not only does the gospel obliterate these divisions, but it says we are one, which means being one means we belong to each other. We belong to each other. Romans 12. I love it. Paul, he continues with this, this metaphor of the body. He says, so in Christ, though many form one body, each member belongs to all the others. And so, man, Paul wasn't writing to the, homogene the church who, who instilled the homogeneous unit principle, which essentially says birds of a feather flock together. No, 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 no. Paul is saying, Jewish Christian, you belong to the Gentile Christian. Christian brother, you belong to the Christian sister. Rich Christian, you belong to the poor Christian. The Christian who was a slave, you belong to the one who was free. White Christian, you belong to the black Christian, Asian Christian, Latino Christian. Here's one. Christian who voted for Donald Trump, you belong to the Christian who voted for Joe Biden. Christian who live in the suburbs, you belong to the Christians who live in the inner city. That hit someone in their spirit. So Paul is saying we are one family, one body. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are one new man. One new man. So in Christ Jesus, we are children of God. In Christ, we're Abraham's seed. In Christ, we are one. I'm reminded it was Carl, the great Carl Bart who said a preacher should preach the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Or John Stott says uh, that the preacher should act as a bridge placed between two worlds, the ancient world of the text and the contemporary world of today. So the question is, what does, what does Galatians mean for us today in, in Wichita, Kansas in 2021? R.B. Hayes writes about our text. He says, Paul holds forth the vision of a community of faith in which, in which all are one in Christ. 
This is not merely a matter of an isolated slogan in Galatians 3.28. It is a central theme of the letter. Jews and Gentiles are no longer divided because Christ's death brought us together. Therefore, I love this, therefore all, all, all manifestations of racial and ethnic divisiveness are betrayals of the truth of the gospel. Galatians is is one of the canon's most powerful witnesses against a cultural imperialism that excludes anyone from fellowship on the basis of criteria not rooted in the gospel. He says any manifestation of racial and ethnic divisiveness is a direct, direct betrayer to the gospel. And there's an example in the chapter before, chapter 2. I got to read it. Verse 11 and 14. It says, but when Cephas, talking about Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct... But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? First off, we need to understand that at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And Paul said he, he presented the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. He presented that gospel uh, to James, John, and Peter. All right, essentially saying that, man, Gentiles do not need to assimilate to come to faith. Saved by grace through faith. He, he presented that gospel, and it says James, John, and uh, Peter all stacked hands. They stacked hands on it. As a matter of fact, it said that Titus was with Paul, who was a Greek, and it said that he, did not even, he was not even compelled to be circumcised. And so all of this was before verse 11 and 14. And then here in our text, we see Peter, an ethnic Jew, who, who, who has developed this habit of sharing table fellowship with ethnic Gentiles. And the reality is he probably wasn't eating a kosher diet himself. And so it says that other Jews showed up on the scene. It says, in fearing the circumcision party, fear, fear, it says P Peter pushed back from the table. He separated himself from table fellowship. And check it out, not just Peter, but other Jews followed his example, even Barnabas, a key spiritual leader. And then here comes Paul, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul's saying this type of behavior is, is, is out of step with the gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. This shows us that you can have sound orthodoxy without having sound orthopraxy. All right, you can have sound orthodoxy without having sound orthopraxy. Or, or let me say it like this. You can have sound, solid gospel doctrine, but have bad gospel culture. And what I mean by gospel culture is this corporate manifestation of the gospel within uh, relationships and the vibe and the feel and the tone and, it, and the aroma of your church. And so you may, you may preach grace, love, humility, but how does it actually work itself out in your community? To give a pretty extreme uh, example, throw a picture up on the screen. It, it might hurt a little bit. 
Throw the picture up on the screen. Oof. This is, a, this is an extreme example. Jesus saves, good gospel doctrine, but clearly bad gospel culture. Bad gospel culture. And so we, we have to bridge together, man, good, solid orthodoxy with, with, with good orthopraxy. We have to live it out. And so I want to end just, just, just with a few points of how this connects with the day. What are some steps you can take? First, be humble and proactive. Be humble and proactive. It's not, just, it's not enough just to say, I'm not racist or I don't struggle with these things. To be stagnant. We need to be proactively working against these issues instead of just waiting for something to happen in the news. We need to be proactively working and, and, and we need to start with ourselves. Most of us are more concerned with wanting to argue, justify, deny, defend, get aggressive, instead of listening, trying to understand, approach this topic with humility, examine ourselves, allow the gospel to do its work on our blind spots. Rowdy is, fam, this happened to Peter, an apostle. This didn't just happen to some new believer. This happened to Peter. Peter showed his humanity. I love it. it. People have no problem talking about the doctrine of sin. Of course, doctrine of sin. As soon as you're talking about someone being a racist, there ain't no way that's me. Because we've all been influenced by our culture and family, and we have to do the work of putting off and putting on the new. So be humble and proactive. Second, be family. We're one. We belong to each other. And so the question you should be asking is, how can I stand with solidarity with my brothers and sisters in the church who are different than me? When something like Ahmaud Arbery happens, George Floyd happens, Eric Mason says it re-traumatizes the whole black community. And so what does it look like to, 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 to take a step back and ask the question, how does this impact my brother and sister? And how can I mourn with those who mourn? How can I sit with them in their pain? And not try to fix it, not try to explain it away. Mourn with those who mourn. That's Romans 12 language. Mourn with those who mourn. So we have to be family. Third, pursue unity and celebrate our differences. Pursue unity. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Are you making every effort? That's big. That's strong language. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. He's commanding us to do something. So this isn't organically just going to happen. <laughs> However, unity in Christ does not mean our differences are just erased. Almost every commentary I read in Galatians 3 said that this does not mean that we no longer see our differences or ignore them. I think this is important for a few reasons. I've had so many people come to me and say, Morgan, when I see you, brother, man, I don't, I, I don't see the color of your skin. And I'm like, okay, I, I want to show empathy because I get what you're trying to say. I get it. But it has good intentions, but I think it breaks down in, 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 in a few ways. First, we're all made in the image of God. Scripture says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This, this does not just mean my soul, gifts, and talents, but all of who I am. God made the melanin in my skin, all right? And so 
I think by saying I don't see color, you could be saying that when I see you, I don't see how God specifically and uniquely made you. I mean, I would never look at my beautiful, gorgeous wife and say, baby, when I see you, I, I don't see your differences. I definitely be saying that. She's a beautiful woman. All right. She's beautiful. God made her different than me. Secondly, I think, I think it can be a way of saying and avoiding the issues, the tension, or the history that our, our country has, because the issues are directly connected to our differences. And I'm going to show you uh, examples in Scripture. John 4, the Samaritan woman. The Holy Spirit was very specific about highlighting her ethnicity because it, it brings in this historical tension into the situation. Acts 6, the Hellenistic Jews. There's tension there. Acts 10, Peter went into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And so a lot of these issues that even Paul deals with in his letters are, are, are specific to their church context, that there's, there's differences ethnically and economically, and he's, he's dealing with these issues. And so by way of saying, so by saying we don't see our differences, we could be trying to ignore and, and, and just gloss over these tension issues that are directly connected to our differences, all right? Also, I think we could also be ignoring the amount of things we can learn from different people in different cultures, because every culture has weaknesses, amen? But also every culture has strengths. So we can learn so much, so much from different people. My last point is the church should have no ethnic home team. The church should have no ethnic home team. God says, the scripture says over and over again that God, in Acts 10, God shows no favoritism or partiality. Therefore, neither should we. Neither should we. This, and that means that everyone should give something up. That's Philippians 2 language. Put others' interests before your own. Put others' interests before your own. I, my view is a multi-ethnic church. Not only is it biblical, um, but it's contextual. Our country is shifting, becoming more diverse, and it's more fruitful. There's Dr. Corey Edwards who said that homogeneous churches, they, they just enable our isms. They perpetuate our isms, our prejudices. But when you're in a multi-ethnic community, man, your blind spots are being called out. So, man, that, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly called to the multi-ethnic church, and I'm thankful for you all because you guys are leading the way in the city. And so, friends... Unity is threefold. Unity was secured by Jesus at the cross. And Jesus will one day come back, wreck shop, put us in the unity that he brought us in. So the problem isn't the cross, and the problem isn't the future reality of new heaven and new earth. The problem is the dash in the middle. The problem is the dash in the middle, and this is why the bridge church was planted. This is why I, myself, Pastor John Gordon, we feel called to plant Redeemer Church because we're going to be a foretaste of the heaven of, of heaven here on earth. So my last charge is Ephesians 4. Make every effort, Bridge Church, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can come together and be unified and be one family. Because of Jesus, we can be honest and humble about our, our, our blind spots and our sin and not live in shame or guilt. But we can walk in the grace of Jesus Christ and be honest about our, our, our shortcomings. 
and we can walk in newness of life, being transformed through the power of the Spirit. So, Father, would you be with the Bridge Church? Would you unify the bridge? Would you show the bridge how to love one another, how to love people different than themselves? And would the Bridge Church be a picture of the gospel, a manifestation of the gospel to the city of Wichita? That would people look at the bridge, they would see something different. They would see something that they want to be a part of. They would see a church of people who has the answer to these issues in our culture. So, Father, be with the leaders of the bridge as they seek to lead and shepherd and preach and navigate hard issues that come up with a diverse congregation. Father, I pray that Galatians 3 would be true of this church. Solid orthodoxy and strong orthopraxy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.